When you need a few pages as opposed to a few lines in your epitaph, you must have lived a fairly incredible life. So it was with Jan Smuts, statesman, military leader, philosopher, and polymath. He was the only person to sign both of the peace treaties ending the First and Second World Wars. Like so many people in history, his legacy was controversial, but his contribution enormous. He wrote the draft documents that brought both the League of Nations and United Nations into being. And he was president of our country. We're talking blind history, and I'm with Anthony Medera, a fellow history geek. <laughs> We're talking about the Prime Minister of South Africa. He was Prime Minister in 1919 until 1924, and then again from 1939 to 1948, Jan Smuts. So he is a very interesting figure because the thing that drew me to him isn't so much his political or his military relevance and significance, but there's stuff about how brilliant this man's brain was that I had completely overlooked or maybe I hadn't even been taught when I was younger. I found him also incredibly interesting and his philosophy and the book he wrote. Yeah, he was he was so clever. He did language and science and was four years ahead of his contemporaries in terms of age. He eventually got a scholarship to Cambridge. He didn't have a lot of money because he came from a, a farming family in the Cape and he, he money was a big problem for him. But he started writing about what is called holism, which is his own philosophy. He wrote a, a book called Walter Whitman, The Evolution of Personality. And in it, he starts to develop what is essentially a whole new area of philosophy. And when he was at Cambridge studying, Lord Todd, who was his master at Christ College, said that in 500 years of Cambridge, only three outstanding people had been produced, Milton, Darwin, and Smuts. Oh, that's some high praise. That is massively high praise. And he was on the farm still when he was 12. So that puts mm. it into perspective. 12 years old, still on the farm. His mom taught him to read and write. And at 21 years old, that's what they say about him. Just incredible. He was praised roundly for his brilliance. It's just his ability to take to things. He was also a botanist, interestingly enough. He used to collect plants and send them back to the Royal Horticultural Society in England. Much later on in his life, he was interviewed, and he obviously had countless interviews because he was he was so well respected. And and this one lady was interviewing for the Times, and why, as a general, are you so interested in grasses? I said, my dear lady, I am only a general in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite friendly with Queen Frederica and the King of Greece. How it transpired was they were under massive pressure from Hitler. And so they were going to extradite them and send them to South Africa for a safe place. Him and his wife, Isa, they were very, very friendly and put them up. And after two weeks, the king and his brother, Crown Prince Paul, went back. They actually went to England because it was very dangerous in Greece at the time. Mm -hmm. But the king's brother's wife, Frederica, stayed behind. And he, he did write how beautiful she was. And so his political enemies jumped on that and said, no, he's having an affair with this young princess. Mm. And Asa didn't, she didn't blink an eye. But um, to such an extent, she, he went to the coronation of Princess Elizabeth. And who was on his arm? At the time, it was now Queen Frederica. Oh, wow. Because the, the king had passed away and then the brother became king. She became Queen Frederica. Last point on this, interestingly enough, and a big irony is – she was a granddaughter of Kaiser Wilhelm II, and her brothers fought for Hitler in the Second World War. Sure. 
despite all of this English stuff in the beginning of his life, he was fiercely South African. He was fiercely proud of being an Afrikaner South African and fought the British in the First and Second Boer Wars. Correct, he did do that. He was incredible. He gave up an, a really good career in law to come back to South Africa. His dream was always a united South Africa. And he started off working. His first boss was Cecil John Rhodes when he worked for De Beers. And then Rhodes obviously staged the Jamison raid, and Smuts was very pissed off with him and broke with him completely, said, you're on your own. And um, he then went into politics and decided to become Paul Kruger's eyes and ears. From there, he stuck with politics the rest of his life. Although, having said that, when he lost the elections, um, I think it was in 1948, mm-hmm. he, um, that he spent a lot of time on his writings again and on his grasses and his botany. Mm. So he does go back to it. But yes, politics was his, his big love and military strategy. He was also quite close to Louis Boita. Um, he was his deputy for the longest time, and he was minister of first the interior and mines, then of finance and defense. So he really had a varied and interesting political career as a, a member of the SAP, the South African Party, which was largely an Afrikaans coalition. But it wasn't as right-wing as the Nationalist Party, which eventually beat him in the 1948 election under Milan. But he has an interesting history in terms of of his feelings on what turned into the biggest issue in South African politics, segregation. In the beginning, he thought segregation was a good idea, but later on, he changed his mind. And because of his change in mind, he lost the election to the Nats. If he had stuck with segregation, he might have won that election, and who knows what could have happened then. So he wasn't trusted in South Africa. He was much more loved overseas. He was much more loved overseas. He had a conciliatory tone in terms of after the Anglo-Boer War, he wanted to get the English and the Boers together more. Mm. And that really upset the Boers. And you can see it play out when they had the vote to see who would go into the Second World War. He narrowly won it and Herzog had to resign. So he had a lot of distrust in South Africa. He was significantly more liberal than the other Afrikaners. And he established the Fagan Commission because the ANC at the time was already established and the Indian Council, etc., were saying, you know, we're absolutely impotent in government in any way to rule our people. And so the Fagan Commission came out with um, different methods or different reports on what we can do. He said it's absolutely nonsense that two races can live separately. But he knew that this would be the end of him. He knew that also this couldn't persevere in the future. And then he was the Gestichte Nationale Party. He lost the elections then. You know what's, what's interesting about him too is that he had this amazing life that overlapped with so many other great lives. So we'll get into Churchill in a minute, but he was also contemporaneous with Gandhi. And Correct. he and Gandhi had meetings. And he was very much opposed to what Gandhi was doing. Gandhi was obviously running the movement for equal rights. But he did have time for all of these people at a time where most of the kind of controlling male white ruler class of of South Africa didn't even make time to sit down and talk to these guys. And he did when he and Louis Boerta eventually wanted to set up the Union of South Africa in 1909. He led the discussions, the kind of commission, and he wanted to have the capital in Pretoria, which he got. He wanted to have English as the official language, which was very strongly opposed. Even though he was a proud Afrikaner, he realized English would be a much better official language for the country to be part of the world. That was opposed very, very stringently by the Free State. Uh, They didn't like that at all. And eventually they compromised and the first 
South African constitution was drafted. We mustn't forget, and you've already hinted at it, that there were members of the of the Afrikaner nationalist movement who were actually sympathetic to the Nazis in World War II and wanted South Africa to fight with the Germans, not with the British. And he was obviously very opposed to that. A lot of the Afrikaners went up to what was then Southwest Africa mm. and to join up with the Germans. When they declared war on Germany, South Africa declared war on Hitler, and there was a definite split. So he and Churchill had an interesting relationship. Um, Churchill was known for being very bolshy and very direct and, and very decisive and didn't want to hear other people's opinions. But Smuts used to stand up to him. Correct, he did. He was he was so well respected by all, so many people in the world. But I've got a, an incident that Lord Mountbatten recalls. And he said it was the only time that Churchill was, in his mind at least, defeated. <laughs> and it said, at about 1 a.m., Churchill said to the gathering, Well, gentlemen, now we will start work. No, said Smuts. I'm going to not start work. I'm not going to be party to killing your chief of staffs. They have to be back in the office at 9 o'clock in the morning, ready for meetings at 9.30. You will still be lying in bed with a fat cigar dictating to your secretary. (laughs) They will have to work all morning and all afternoon, and in the afternoon you have your siesta. You bring them down here and make them work all night as well. You will kill them, and I'm not going to be party to that. With that, Smuts got up and went to bed. There was a stunned silence for a minute or two. Nobody spoke. After a long pause, Winston stood up and said, Well, gentlemen, perhaps we'd better go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the only recorded time, as you say, that Churchill was defeated. But if Churchill had died in World War II, do you know that Smuts would have become Prime Minister of of the United Kingdom? I read that. I did. I was aware of that. That's incredible. That's how highly rated he was. Mm. And apparently King George VI and Queen Mary, who was his mother, were very comfortable with that. They said, yep, we're happy for him to take over should anything happen to Churchill. He was one of seven people in 1945 to have been considered for the Nobel Peace Prize. Did you know that? And he was made Chancellor of Cambridge University as the first non-UK Chancellor in 1948. So he really made a huge impression on people in Britain. He addressed both Houses of Parliament and made a very impressive speech just towards the end of World War II about what should happen next. And we know about his foundation in the League of Nations and the the United Nations later on. He really wanted to make sure that they didn't destroy Germany. Because he'd been in both wars, part of the Treaty of Versailles and of the League of Nations post-war, he realized that a really unhappy resolution could create something hectic and such as Nazis and Hitler. So he was very strong on bringing Germany back into the fold. After the defeat of Germany in World War I, they wanted to rename what was Tanganyika and became Tanzania. And Uganda, German East Africa, they wanted to rename it Smutsland. And he said, absolutely not, and would have none of it. (laughs) So he died here in South Africa in Dornkloof and Irene, in a house that you can still go and visit. There's a museum there. And he died in 1950. Just a couple of days after his 80th birthday. A lot of people saw him outwardly, if you didn't know him well, that he was he was quite cold and aloof. But he was actually relaxed and genial, and he loved children to see a different part of his character, as, especially as he got older. Wow, what a guy. If I could just share something somebody wrote about Jan Smuts on his passing. In all the numerous fields in which he shone, warrior, statesman, philosopher, philanthropist, Jan Smuts commands in his majestic career the admiration of all. There is no personal tragedy in the close of so long and complete a life as this. 
but his friends who are left behind to face the unending problems and perils of human existence feel an overpowering sense of impoverishment and imperable loss. This sense is also a measure of the gratitude with which we and lovers of freedom and civilization in every land salute his memory. Winston Churchill. Hmm. That's a quite, quite a good epitaph. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History, brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. This is CliffCentral.com.